Awaken us to your presence. Um, Quicken us to your spirit. To the glory of your name. Amen. Um, I was reading that, that some years ago, apparently, executives at a Houston airport were facing a, a troubling customer relations issue. Uh, passengers were, were complaining an inordinate amount about the long waits in baggage claim. And, and so in response, the executives, you know, they increased the number of baggage handlers and they performed a, a great number of studies about how they can get the baggage quicker, and, and the plan worked. Uh, actually, the, the average wait time for baggage at that airport fell to just eight minutes, which was well within industry benchmarks. But it would seem that the complaints persisted. They kept coming. And so, a little confused, a little, little bit puzzled, um, the, the airport executives undertook a, a more careful on-site analysis. And, and what they discovered was actually really interesting. They found that it took passengers one minute to walk from their arrival gates to baggage claim and seven minutes more to get their bags. So roughly 88% of their time, in other words, was spent waiting around for their bags. And so they actually decided on a new approach. Instead of reducing wait times, uh, it moved the arrival gates f- uh, like away from the main terminal and routed bags to the outermost carousel. And passengers now had to walk six times longer in order to get their bags, but complaints dropped to near zero. <laughs> People don't like to wait. Uh, the, the drudgery of, of unoccupied time also accounts in large measure for the popularity of impulse buy items, which earn supermarkets approximately $5.5 billion annually. It would appear that tabloids and packs of gum offer relief, relief from the agony of waiting. <laughs> North Americans collectively spend roughly <laughs> 42 billion hours each year, waiting in a line. (laughs) Um, Waiting for Christmas. It's strange then, as unpopular as waiting is, that we have a season in in our church calendar that actually celebrates waiting. Waiting for Christmas. Waiting for Christmas, when I was a kid... (laughs) <laughs> it was not fun. My, my father had fun with me. He had fun with us on Christmas morning because on Christmas morning, the rule in our house was that you had to wait until everybody woke up before you could attack the Christmas tree. You, you, and, and people had to wake up naturally. It, it, <laughs> myself and my two brothers were not allowed to help people wake up. We had to wait until, until, they, until they woke up. And, and then after that, we would, there would be the process of, of making and eating breakfast together. And, and on that, that day, of course, cereal and toast would not suffice. There was the the eggs and the sausage and the ham and the, and the, and the muffins. And 
And, and then as we finished with, with hammy flavor yet in our mouths, we proceeded to the living room not to open presents, but to read again from the Christmas story from the Bible. Never was I less open to hearing from the word of the Lord than I was at that time. When the story was, Christmas story was read for us, both Matthew and Luke And at that point, my brother said I would just shake it. Like, we, we, we had the shakes. We, we couldn't deal with it. But the passage we're going to look at today is, is a story of, of Jesus encountering a couple of people who had been waiting, and waiting a long time. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 21 through 38. And so if you are able, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. (coughs) Luke 2, starting at verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was given the name Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, Now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the hearts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Thus far, the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Now, most people would be pretty familiar with the events leading up to to this episode in the Bible. Um, 
The prophets had, had for centuries been promising the coming of one who would deliver God's people, uh, promising the Messiah. And not surprisingly, for a people with their history and their particular situation, they had some expectations of what this might look like. Um, God's people had been living under oppression for some time now, um, from the Babylonians, then from the Persians, and then from the Greeks, and at this point in history, from the Romans. Um, and, And when they had been slaves, even before that, in Egypt... God had sent deliverance in in the person of Moses, um, a person who came not just to sort of buoy their spirits, but to actually set them free from the yoke of Egyptian oppression. And, and, And that they might expect then something along the lines... Of, of Moses in a Messiah is not entirely unreasonable. Um, but, but God had something else in mind. In, instead of sending some sort of, of an emissary, God himself comes to earth as a baby in, in a sort of much-heralded, fanfared humility. I mean, yes, it was the creator of the universe that was arriving on the scene, but he comes as a baby in a little barn. Yes, the, the, the sky does explode in a sort of supernatural, celestial celebration with music and light, but only for the benefit of a few social outcasts on a rural hillside. But nonetheless, as surely as the promises of God, Jesus is born. And the passage we're looking for is the first recorded episode after his birth. So let, let's take another look again here. It says, on the eighth day, when it came time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. This is essentially the story of of Jesus' baby dedication. Um, Mosaic law at the time, law concerning community and and ceremonial cleanliness, demanded a period of waiting before a new mom could be considered ceremonially clean and then come into the temple, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us now, but in the ancient Near East among the Hebrews, that's how it was in accordance with the, the laws given in Leviticus. And, and Luke takes great pains to demonstrate how these people were uh, acting in obedience with God's law. The fact that, that they submitted to this law uh, tells us it's a sign that they were, this was a sincere, a pious family, serious about keeping God's law. And they were offering pigeons as a sacrifice, which demonstrates, incidentally, that they were a poor family. A a wealthier family would have offered a lamb or something of of that nature. But this poor peasant family comes, and they they come with their sacrifice. And in Luke uh, 2, 25 and 26, Luke introduces us to Simeon. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So it's interesting to note that in talking about his longing for the Messiah, 
Luke describes him as, long, as longing for the consolation of Israel. The text then says in the same, in the same sentence that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The, the Holy Spirit, whom the Bible also calls the Comforter, the Consoler. So even as he longed for consolation, he was filled with the consolation he sought for his community, for his nation. And almost as an additional comfort to Simeon, God promises that he would not die until such time as he had beheld the Messiah for whom he longed so deeply. Tradition has it that he was likely an old man, but this isn't necessarily the case. But he had obviously been longing for some time that, that, that God would show him the Christ. And then it says, it says that moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts... And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the law, uh, what the law required, like, like Simeon had lived a life that was guided by the Spirit. It says, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. If you ask God for something, following God in obedience is often an essential aspect of receiving what it is that you've asked for. And you'll note here, too, that the, the work of the Spirit here is drawing him to Christ, even as the work of the Spirit regularly is drawing us to Christ. <clears throat> I do remember a season in, in my life when I was at something of a crossroads, and, and I, was, I, felt like I, was, I felt like I was confused. I, I mean, I suppose that doesn't narrow things down much for my life. But, but in this particular season, I was, I was confused. I, I felt different voices sort of pulling me in different directions. And I confessed this to my mentor at the time, that I was struggling to discern what the voice of the Spirit was. And, and I was trying to distinguish between the voice of the Spirit and, and what the voices that were just me trying to persuade myself that what I wanted was what God... I, does anybody else experience this? this is, I'm really good at persuading myself that what I want is what God wants. Um, and so I was having a difficult time trying to discern what the voice of the Spirit was. And I'll never forget my mentor's response to this. He said, Lincoln, in this instance, it's pretty straightforward. The Holy Spirit's voice is the one that's leading you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit draws us to Christ. And the Holy Spirit drew Simeon in this particular instance to Christ. And then it says in verse 28, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon now in... And really, this, this really touching scene in, a, in an act of, of tenderest worship picks up the infant Jesus and praises God. I, I, feel, I feel like I can almost hear the trembling in his voice as he basically just tells God, that's it. You know, I've, I've seen all I need to see. I can die a happy man now. He, he clearly felt that having experienced a connection with Jesus, that life had nothing greater than to offer him. Seeing Jesus, whether or not he knew 
how this salvation would come about. He knew that here in his arms lay salvation. Not only for him, but for his people. And for all oppressed peoples. And even for his oppressors. In this In this poignant moment, Simeon knows that here in his arms lay the hope for salvation for all of creation. He says that he can can die now because he has seen salvation already. He doesn't even say that he has seen what would eventually become salvation. He says he had seen God's salvation Now, of course, the, the baby Jesus had some things yet to do um, uh, in, in order to, to win salvation for all people for all time. I mean, he would, in, in, in what amounts to the greatest act of humility in all time, of all time, live among us, teaching us, healing, forgiving. Um, he would also, in, in what amounts to the greatest act of love in history, allow himself to be unjustly and gruesomely murdered at the hands of an insecure religious and political establishment because his love and purity and wisdom represented a threat to their authority and a mirror exposing their hypocrisy. And he would also, in the greatest display of power in history, rise from the dead and then after a while ascend to heaven to the right hand of the Father, even where, where even at this moment, he is interceding for me and for you. Hallelujah. But, but Simeon knew that salvation was not some of those other things that we try to make it, but that, sal- that salvation was a person. And that at that point in history, salvation was a small, fragile person who cried and drooled and fussed and who had who had soft skin and underdeveloped motor function and, 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 and a, little, a little soft spot on the top of his head. Salvation lay in his arms at that moment. And what's more, he knew and, and, and said that that miracle, God incarnate, God made flesh, God with us, was, a, was to be a light for all people. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was it was a light of revelation for the Gentiles, for for those who did not yet know God. For them, this was like nothing they had ever seen before. Not a God who was far off, disdainful, and or or disinterested. Nor a God who who lorded his deity over them, you know, bending them to a self-serving will with with threats of smitings. Uh, No, here was God descended from his throne, descended from eternity, placing himself in the care of a nervous teen and her brand new husband. This was like nothing they had ever seen before. And for Israel, for those who know God, for for us even, Simeon says that the, the light of salvation is our glory. Um, Jeremiah 9 in verse uh, 23, says, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, nor the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, 
justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. We often want to make other things our glory. We want, we want the glory of the church. We want, we want signs and wonders and miracles in our churches. And we want, we want awesome preaching and inspiring music in our churches. And we want, you know, we want clever responses and retorts that will, that will make atheists wilt. And we want beautiful edifices and, and, and lots of stuff. And we want respectability and we want authority and, and we want the dominant voice that will determine laws and policies in our cities and countries. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those things that I've mentioned. But, and, and God can certainly use those things um, and has used them historically. But what the scriptures reveal to us and what they tell us over and over again is that the real glory of the people of God, the real true light that will reveal God to those who do not yet believe is when we allow God to enter in, to dwell in our midst, and to lead us to serve our world and to serve each other in love and humility. It's through this that we can be active participants in bringing God's salvation, God's light to all people, by by living the gospel, by sharing the God that dwells among us through acts of love and justice, and and being ready, as the scripture exhorts us, to, to give an answer to those who will inevitably ask for the reason for our hope. Jesus is that answer, and Jesus in our midst will be our glory both now and forever. Amen. And then in verses uh, 33 to 35, it says, The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts and hearts Will be so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Mary and Joseph um, are a little staggered by what this man, presumably a stranger, says to them about their baby, in spite of the fact that they already knew something about who God was. Um, They already knew something about who this Jesus was. But this is not uh, entirely unreasonable. People have had, uh, from time to time, complimentary things to say about my kids. But this seems to lower all records, what Simeon has said about Jesus here. And, And what's more, Simeon makes no bones about the seriousness of what it is that the baby Jesus represents. As God incarnate... Jesus, the baby Jesus, is the crucible of all history. And, and as, as God among us, as God in people's faces, he could not be ignored. Even as it is with people who, who truly encounter God today. I mean, if you take a look through the Gospels, nobody who encounters Jesus ever views him with indifference or with mild approval. Uh, anyone who truly meets Jesus in the Bible responds in one of three ways. It's either fear or anger or worship. And noting this, Simeon accurately prophesies that that this will bring pain, not only to Jesus, but to Mary as well. 
And then in verse 36, it says there was also a prophetess, Anna. She was very old, lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all, all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, Luke is identifying another person who was longing for the redemption of Israel, longing for the redemption of her people, this time a prophetess named Anna. Luke also again seems to be drawing our attention to the providential timing of the Holy Spirit. It says, it says, it says somewhere, it says, yeah, it says in verse 38, coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God. Simeon was drawn by the Holy Spirit at just the right time. And again, here the passage, it says, coming up to them at that very moment. But it, it's interesting also to know what the, what the scriptures say about Anna and, and, and what, her, what her regular occupation was. It said she spent all of her time in the temple worshiping and praising God. And, it, and, it, and Luke seems to be making the connection um, that, that, the, that the idea of regular pursuit of God is a common feature among those who, who recognize God. Um, as, as, as Anna praised and worshipped God, she got to know God's face. She got to know who God was. And then when God appeared in the form of a little baby, she seems to recognize him immediately. There's the recognition that comes with familiarity, that comes with the practicing of God's presence. So I'll, allow me to, to just draw your attention to a couple of things that, that I've kind of noted in, in, my, in looking through this passage this past week. Note, first of all, the single-minded, single-heartedness of Simeon. Who seemed to live only for the presence of God and for the consolation of his people. It seems to me that that longing to see the things of God enables us to better see them when they do occur. Anna and Simeon, the very first people to recognize Jesus as the Savior, were people who recognized the need for a Savior and longed with all that was in them for God to bring that to fruition. Um, note also that, that what, they were, what they had been doing in the, in the meantime, in the meantime, praising and worshiping God. Uh, sometimes it's keeping busy that, that helps us pass the time of waiting because waiting on the Lord is, is, is never best a passive thing. Um, part of what ma- waiting on the Lord means is being active in, in pursuit of God's kingdom and, and who God is. The story, uh, uh, the, the story I was telling before about, about the, the airport in Houston, um, it, it hints at a general principle, and that is that the experience of waiting, whether for, for luggage or for groceries or for anything else, is defined only in part by the objective length of the wait. Um, MIT uh, 
Professor Richard Larson, who is widely considered apparently to be the world's foremost expert on lines. Apparently such a thing exists. <laughs> he says that often the psychology of queuing is more important than the statistics of the wait itself. Occupied time, for example, walking to the baggage claim feels shorter than unoccupied time, standing at the carousel. And, and this apparently is also why um, ever since uh, World War II, as I guess when they started doing this, put mirrors uh, beside elevators. Uh, be, because the rationale behind the mirrors is, is similar, that you give people something to do to occupy their time, um, and the wait will feel shorter. <laughs> Fixation on the worship, therefore, on the things of God, on the kingdom of God, on the presence of God, will not only allow you to wait better, but it allows you to recognize him, even where others might miss him. To recognize the inbreakings of the kingdom of God, where others might miss them. And it allows us to better wait, better wait for the coming of our Lord, both as we celebrate him at Christmas and as we wait for the coming of the Lord that is yet to come. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So can we resolve in this season of Advent then to be a people of waiting, to be a people of expectation? I'm going to leave you with a, with a quote from, from Henry Nouwen. It says this, Waiting is not a very popular attitude. Waiting is not something that people think about with great relish. It impresses me, therefore, that all the figures who appear on the first pages of Luke's gospel are waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth are waiting. Mary is waiting. Simeon and Anna, who were there at the temple when Jesus was brought in, were waiting. The whole opening scene of the good news is filled with waiting people. And right at the beginning of all and, and right at the beginning, all those people in some way or another hear the words, Do not be afraid. I have something good to say to you. Um, let's pray. The worship team can come on up. Lord, we want to be a people of expectation. We want to be a people who wait well. So give us grace to fix our eyes on you. Give us grace to be attentive to your kingdom. 